Well, again, Acts chapter 28, uh, the very uh, end of Acts, it's on page 937 of the Pew Bibles. Acts 28, beginning at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, uh, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law and Moses, a law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of our Lord. Well, what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin by thanking you for tolerating me as your pastor. And I do mean that sincerely. Uh, If you are uh, new here, maybe you uh, didn't know this, but uh, the Jones family is new here. We have been here for uh, 14 months. So on on the one hand, it feels like a long time, but on the other hand, it doesn't. One of the things that we are going to begin doing as a church body is we are going to begin talking about a vision that we will share as a church body and carry into East Brainerd and by God's grace into uh, the world. What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to take a a break from our series in Romans to present one sermon, and and I'll I'll do this uh, uh, frequently. I'll I'll stop just to deliver a single uh, sermon on a particular uh, topic. Uh, In this series of sermons, which again, they're they're not all going to be preached together. They're going to come at you sporadically. But what I'd like for us to do as a church body is I'd like for us to reflect on uh, some of those doctrines that are uh, particular to our church. And this morning, I'd like for us to talk about uh, our uh, vision as a church. But but let me say that there are some features of our church that are uh, rather distinct. Uh, in fact, people who are new to Presbyterianism, uh, new to Reformed theology, even if they have been a Protestant for many years, uh, they'll recognize uh, some of these things. So, uh, for instance, uh, here at Covenant, we uh, baptize infants. Did you know that? Well, you probably knew that. Uh, Here at Covenant, we believe in uh, two covenants in the Bible, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Uh, Here at Covenant, we uh, actually uh, talk a lot about fencing the Lord's table that we might protect unbelievers from uh, coming uh, to the Lord's table inappropriately. Uh, Here we ordain elders and we ordain deacons. And here we don't ordain women as elders or as deacons. Here at Covenant, we ask elders and deacons to subscribe to a confession of faith. That's a bit unusual. Here at Covenant, we actually uh, like uh, denominationalism. We love being a part of the PCA. Covenant is a church that believes in predestination. 
uh, where we as a church practice not only church membership, but we also practice church discipline. We as a church uh, do not teach uh, dispensational theology, but we do teach the infallibility and inerrancy and authority and inspiration of Holy Scripture. So there's a lot of things that are like that that uh, I would like for us to have an opportunity to just speak on, uh, not from uh, the point of doctrinal uh, education, but from the point of Scripture. We want to look at passages that then explain some of the distinctive features of Covenant Presbyterian Church. And so that's why I'm interrupting the sermon series this morning. Uh, We want to occasionally speak from texts that define uh, some of these distinct features. So uh, these are all expositional sermons, as you'd expect. That's what we, that's what we do here. They're sermons that explain a point of doctrine. Uh, they're uh, sermons, as the one this morning, will be from a text to explain something uh, about the life of the church. This morning we'll talk about uh, a, a central feature of our vision. We'll talk about a proclamation, that word proclamation you heard in our passage this morning. And then just uh, something for you to keep in mind, Uh, over time, all of these sermons, they're going to be assigned a category on the church website so that someone can go to the church website and they select the category essentials and they'll just get a long list of these sermons that that explain some of the things that are more distinctive to us as a uh, Presbyterian and Reformed congregation. So that's what I'm doing this morning. I'm preaching one of those essentials uh, sermons, and you'll be able to see it on the website in that way. Uh, and why am I doing that? Well, this morning I want to I preach on a central claim of our new vision as a church. At the end of last month, our elders approved a mission statement and a vision statement for our church. I want to again talk about the newness of your pastor My desire has been to spend time with you and to learn from you, particularly to learn about a church that has been around for a very long time, one that I am indeed honored to be a part of. And over those months, I have learned a lot about our church, and our elders and our deacons have both been very patient with me. But what I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to uh, advance a vision, a mission of a church, and that was approved by our session at last month's meeting and I want to share that with you, but of course, if you open your worship bulletin for, uh, and look at the sermon notes, you'll see the, the mission statement of our church and the vision statement of our church, and you'll also see the sermon outline this morning. You know, maybe you've noticed this when you walk, uh, walk into our sanctuary, there are words that are actually etched uh, into the building, and the, the words begin uh, in Latin, of course, uh, solideo gloria. Uh, to uh, uh, the glory of God alone, soli Deo gloria. That statement is actually an important motto uh, that has been used from the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But as you walk into our building and you see the word soli Deo gloria, you also read something else. There's another statement that's on our building, and that statement is actually the motto of our denomination, the PCA. Although technically it was never actually made official, it has become this broad summary of what our denomination believes. And it says, faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, obedient to the great commission. That's who we are, and I hope you've taken notice of that as you've walked into the sanctuary. But this is not the specific mission statement or vision statement of our church, that which you find at the bottom of the sermon notes page. 
And at the very conclusion of the sermon, I want to uh, draw your attention uh, to that mission and vision statement. But we're going to begin, uh, of course, by uh, looking at a passage. I'd like to introduce the central action of that vision statement with the word proclamation. We believe that Christians are commanded both individually and corporately to love God and to love our neighbors. These, these aren't unrelated tasks. They stand together. John says, uh, whoever uh, loves God must also love his brother, 1 John 4.21. We love God by acknowledging his own love for us and sending his son to die for us as a substitutionary atonement. We love God by worshiping and serving that son, our Savior. And similarly, we love our neighbors best when we make this son known in our life and in our speech. Put another way, as we proclaim this Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, as we worship him and as we serve him, we are loving God and we're also loving our neighbors. Christ's at the center. And Christ is at the center of this passage as we read about the last word in the ministry of uh, Paul. This sermon is then an introduction to the central uh, action of our vision, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And so this is what Acts 28, 23 through 31 shows us in the example of Paul over a two-year period. What this passage shows us is that for the Christian, a proclamation of Jesus Christ is actually a way of life. The proclamation of Jesus, it's a way of life. And so as we look at this passage together, we're to notice that, uh, that what is clearly before us is a practical guide of what each of us are called to do as Christians, but also what we're called to do as a church body. Now, I want to be very clear that, that every Christian and every true, true church is called to proclaim Jesus Christ. Every Christian, every true church, no Christian And no Bible-believing church gets to ignore the proclamation of Jesus. However, here at Covenant, our elders believe that this ministry in particular, the ministry of proclamation, has been central to our vision for the past 30 years. And we want to, to mature in this by studying the proclamation of Christ, but also by practicing the proclamation of Christ more and more and making sure that all of our various ministries in our life as a church have a firm connection to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So what I'd like to do in this sermon uh, from Acts 28 is I want to just, I want to do two things. I want to first establish the very setting of this passage. The passage takes place in first century Rome, and I want to talk about that setting. And then I want to explain what Luke seems to be highlighting about these events in the last two verses of the book of Acts. Luke is crystallizing this two-year ministry of Paul's. And along the way, we will see that proclamation is, for the Christian, a way of life. So, a few things about the setting of this passage, verses 23 through 28. The circumstances uh, in which Paul is living right now. Let me just say it this way. The city of Rome is about to implode. It's about to implode. This passage is happening in AD 60 or so. And Nero, he became emperor in AD 54, uh, some uh, six years earlier. 
You see, uh, Nero's mother murdered his adopted father, Claudius, uh, with a plate of poisoned mushrooms. Why? Because she wanted her, her son to become emperor faster, and this made it possible. Nero became emperor at only 17 years old. The first five years of, of Nero's reign, really it was the, the reign of his mother, but those first five years in Rome were extremely peaceful. Nero's stepfather, Claudius, had created a very efficient government, and the government basically ran itself. The economy was strong. There was peace in the provinces. Uh, Nero's uh, childhood tutor, Seneca, continues to advise him and to write his speeches. Uh, In fact, this uh, period in Roman history uh, is known as the uh, Golden Five Years. Now, when this teen became emperor, Paul was living in Ephesus. He's living in Ephesus for longer than he had ever ministered in a single place before, almost two years. And by the winter of 56, two years into Nero's reign, he travels to Jerusalem. And you'll remember that he's arrested in Jerusalem, and he's imprisoned for two years uh, on the coast in a city just north of Tel Aviv. And afterwards, along with other prisoners, Paul, he's, he's transferred to Rome where he would spend two years under house arrest to wait for a trial. And that's what's happening right now in our passage. Now keep this in mind. Paul was in Rome just as the peace of Nero was coming unraveled. In the year that Paul arrived, or possibly the year earlier, Nero kills his cousin Britannicus because he was becoming a bit too popular. Uh, And then just uh, uh, enormous events precipitated after that. Uh, Nero had attempted to murder his mother by sending her um, off on a ship designed to fall apart at sea, and she survives and swims to shore, and a friend of Nero happily kills her. And then things would get worse. But all of this is happening actually while Paul is in Rome. Verse uh, 30 uh, tells us that Paul was held at his own expense. And many believe that this phrase, at his own expense, uh, refers to the kind of lodging that Paul had while he was in Rome. That he was kept in a rented apartment in one of the many tenements in the city. Uh, These rented apartments, by the way, uh, were an invention of Rome. And they're sprouting up all over the city. And it would seem from verse 20 that Paul uh, was forced to wear a chain, perhaps a chain uh, on his uh, ankle in this small uh, apartment in an apartment building. And we, he would have surely been supervised perhaps by uh, government staff that are also living in that same building that they, that they might keep an eye on Paul. Now, while all of this is happening, Nero, he's dropping off the edge. He's filled his staff with henchmen. Innocent people are being executed all the time for treason. He banishes and executes his wife in order that he might marry his mistress. All while Paul's in Rome. Nero lived lavishly, confiscated wealth as he needed it, ignored justice, oppressed anyone in his way, and he hated all of those who would not conform, which means he hated the Jews. And history tells us that in particular he hated Christians even more. And in two years, two years after Paul's two years in Rome, he is going to persecute the Christians mightily. Paul is living in a rapidly decaying, 
tremulous, difficult city. And look who the guests are that Paul invites. You can see in verse 17, Paul very early on calls for uh, local leaders of the Jews. Now, there were, as we're reading Romans, there were believing Jews in the churches at Rome. But these are not the people Paul is reaching out to, are they? Paul is inviting the Jews in Rome who uh, have described Christians as a sect, that body of people who just are always spoken against everywhere. And this sect or party had already been known as the sect of the Nazarenes or uh, those who are according to the way. And Paul, he actually wants to find those people who loathe Christians most of all, and he wants to speak to him. And they actually come to hear Paul. Verse 23 says that they came to his lodging, but not only that, they come to his lodging in greater numbers. That's interesting. Paul is saying hard things to them from his imprisonment, but they come in greater numbers from morning till evening. Now, Luke, who writes Acts, is very clear that Paul has been living this way for two years. And just as the churches in Rome are beginning to say goodbye to peace and they're waiting for things to go from bad to worse, everyone can feel it. Paul is reaching out to the Jews and he's using everything that he has to reach out to them. But Paul's also reaching out to Gentiles. Look at verse 28. Paul knows that a rejection of the Jews are actually going to serve as a doorway to the Gentiles. Paul, from his very first mission trip in Acts chapter 13, has seen this happen over and over and over again. He goes to proclaim to the Jews, and uh, as they reject him, a door uh, opens wide for Paul to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul sees this as a reality of Isaiah chapter 6. And so for two years... Paul is active in ministry to Jews and ministry to Gentiles. And he's doing it with chains, always guarded, in an apartment room, in an apartment building. Now we might ask, is there proof that Paul is actually having a, uh, an experience of missionary endeavor with Gentiles? During these two years, Paul likely wrote the letter to the Philippians. And in the first chapter of Philippians, uh, Paul says this. Paul says that it it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. These two years of Paul's life are saturated with Jesus Christ, even before we look at the ministry that Paul executes from this apartment room. The staff that's in charge of Paul, uh, Roman uh, generals, Roman leaders, uh, they're keeping an eye on Paul while at the same time uh, their own world is about to implode. They're listening to the uh, stresses and the fissures in their world, but they're at the same time listening to the ministry that Paul is having to these Jews. One commentator, Simon Christmacher, says it this way. He says, I'm sure that while Paul lived in this house with a soldier guarding him, that his daily conversation was not about the weather. Instead, he introduced the soldier to Jesus Christ, taught him the truths of Christ's gospel, and instilled in him a saving knowledge of Jesus. And as in any army, a soldier in the Roman army was frequently transferred. And if we assume that the soldier who guarded Paul became a Christian and was posted to another part of the Roman Empire, Paul would indeed send forth a missionary... 
That's glorious to behold, especially from a man who is in chains, always watched, can't move about freely. And we begin to see that this room in this apartment becomes a headquarters for missionary activity. Now, circumstances. What about the, uh, what about the method of Paul? We've looked at the, his audience. What is he doing when this audience uh, comes to be with him? It seems to me that what Paul is doing at the very end of our section, verses 30 and 31, would you look at it and notice something that, per, that perhaps you didn't see? In verses 30 and 31, we actually can summarize what it is that Paul is doing over this two-year period. Because Luke tells us that Paul is welcoming all who came to him. He is proclaiming and he is teaching. How about that? The whole two-year period, Luke summarizes with welcoming, proclaiming, and teaching. And if we want to know what that means in detail, we get actually a picture of that in verses 23 through 25. I think what what Luke is telling us in verse 23 and 25 is he's given us an an outline of what he means by welcoming, proclaiming, and teaching. And look what he does in verse 23. He's going to say three things uh, with regards to Paul's method in chains in this uh, apartment. First, he says this, from morning to evening, he expounded to them. He expounded to them. In Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, they take uh, Apollos aside, a man who is very uh, gifted in uh, preaching, and they take him aside to explain to him the way of God more accurately. Uh, That's what 18.26 of of Acts says. But the word that's used there to explain to to him the way of God more accurately is to expound. The word literally means to unfold or to expose Paul is uh, spending time with these uh, guests of his, and he is uh, unfolding uh, that which is actually there, that which is actually true. It's fascinating that uh, the, the world is structured in such a way that the gospel is always being proclaimed, God making himself known in creation, in the way human beings are made. And Paul, as they, as they come and they spend time with them, he is expounding the story of redemption in their midst. A good way to understand this is that this is the simplest approach to utilizing familiar scriptures, things that his guests would have already understood. Uh, Apollos understood so much. But what Paul is doing when he expounds is that he is uh, stitching together loose connections that folks have uh, in their minds and in their hearts uh, that they would begin to see the larger picture of the story of redemption. You know, I, I think that we do a lot of expounding here at uh, Covenant. I've noticed that many people who come to Covenant, they already know a few things uh, about Scripture and about the Christian life. That's relatively new to me. Uh, I come from a setting in which uh, many people would uh, come to our church and they, they wouldn't know very much about the Christian faith other than uh, it was something that they didn't want to be a part of. But they didn't grow up, many of them, uh, going to Sunday school. They didn't grow up with Christian parents. 
And I find that many people who come here, uh, they know uh, a thing or two about Scripture and the Christian life. And uh, what we have an opportunity to do as a church is to expound upon those familiar passages, those things that they know, to show them how these things fit together by God's grace to form a unified composition of the story of redemption, God revealing himself over time. Uh, Expounding is like describing in more detail something that you thought that you understood already. And that's very much a part of our calling here at Covenant. But that's what Paul is doing. He is expounding. But he's doing something else, Luke tells us. Also in verse 23, he says that Paul is not merely expounding, but he's also testifying. He's revealing to them the story of redemption in the world before their very eyes, but he's also testifying. Now this, this actually is a technical expression. He's declaring something that is true using his own life and his own experiences as evidence. He's using his personal sincerity and his earnestness to serve as evidence for something that is far larger than himself. Uh, Look at what he's testifying to. Luke tells us that he's testifying to nothing short of the kingdom of God. This expression in the Bible always refers to the cosmic reign of God. It's about his legitimate authority about his pinnacle of hierarchy. It's about his power over the vast cosmos. But the kingdom of God uh, in the story of redemption is also about the power of that great cosmos reaching down into our body and our soul that we would become a new creation. To testify to the kingdom of God is to to use your own subjugation, your own sinfulness, your own submission as proof of the truth of the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. He has saved me and he will not condemn me. So Paul's expounding, but he's also using his own heart to testify to his presence by God's grace in the kingdom of God. And again in verse 23, there's a third component. He's expounding and testifying, but Paul, he's also, uh, Luke says, trying to convince them. I love that expression that comes from the ESV translators. You know, it's a single word in the Greek. He's persuading them. And he's persuading them not just to agree with him. He's persuading uh, them in a moral way. He's persuading them to place their trust in that which he is expounding and that which he is testifying to. If they're convinced, they're believers, verse 24 says, because if they are unconvinced, then they are unbelievers. And so what Paul is doing is he's using a multitude of angles. He's debating with them. He's countering their arguments against him. And if expounding is explaining uh, using those things that they already know, uh, trying to convince them or persuade them, it's actually more detailed. This is why Luke tells us at this point that he is looking into the law and he's looking into the prophets. He's using every single verse at hand to convince them that Jesus is the great king. Well, let's back off from the scene and just just ask, what is it that Paul's doing here? Uh, sure, he's expounding and he's testifying and he is persuading, but but what is he what is he doing? He's using everything that he has, every resource, uh, every opportunity, uh, everything uh, about uh, what Paul has is singularly devoted to this one task to Jews and to Gentiles of making. Christ known. How would you spend two years in prison? Perhaps some of you actually know that by experience. 
But Luke is being very clear that what Paul is doing is that is, is Paul is expounding and testifying and he is persuading. Now, uh, what are the results of this? The results are actually, well, they're mixed. And Luke, he wants us to see this. Uh, in verse 24, some are convinced, some are not. Some are saved, some are, some are not. But not only this, in verse 25, there are large numbers of people who it would seem uh, are not only not convinced by what Paul has to say, they leave arguing among themselves. Luke doesn't give us an opportunity to uh, see these two years as clearly a blessing of imprisonment. The results are spotty. And it's good that we see that. It's humbling that we see that. Because by the time we come to verses 30 and 31, what Luke has done is he's actually prepared us in detail to see how Paul's life was occupied. Paul will say at the end of Romans this. Romans has already been written at this time, but he will look at this later on. Romans 15, Paul says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. How many options do you think Paul has in prison? Shackled, always watched, impoverished, unable to go out and make a living, unable to advance himself, unable to control his destiny in any meaningful way. What is he doing? He's using everything that he has to make Jesus known. And it seems to me that what Luke does is he summarizes in a single verse what it is that Paul's doing with that time. And he does so with three verbs. He says, Paul's welcoming all who came to him. And the word that, that Luke uses is he's, he's receiving them with warmth. He's welcoming all who came to him, laying out a tablecloth, preparing a, a nice meal of pasta, right? He's imprisoned. He has nothing to offer them, but he's still welcoming them with warmth. And he's proclaiming to them, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he's spending time with them. He's, he's teaching them about the Lord Jesus. And I like to think that Luke intends for us to see all three of these actions uh, working in perfect harmony and synergy in the ministry of Paul these two years of his life. As he welcomes them, we can think about Paul expounding to them the story of redemption. Uh, he's uh, welcoming, welcoming them with warmth, with gentleness, that he might have an opportunity to expound to them a story, a story that is happening all around them, a story that began before creation, a story that will be brought to complete uh, uh, consummation, and, and that's happening right now, and Paul welcomes his guests that he might share with them that story, revealing to, to that which their eyes have not taken note of. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated, is here and he reveals that as he welcomes them. And we think about uh, Paul proclaiming as, a, uh, as an emphatic statement of testimony. Uh, this word for proclaim, it's a, it's a very hot-headed word. How remarkable that there would be a, a warm welcome and then this word of proclamation actually doesn't match. There's nothing warm about a Caruso proclamation. That's the Greek word that Paul uses. And from that word, we get the, get the name uh, a herald. 
One uh, writer from the 11th century uh, helps us to understand the significance of this word, Caruso, the significance of a herald, and he says it this way. He says that a, that a herald is in time of war what an ambassador is in time of peace. A herald is in time of war what an ambassador is in time of peace. In a time of peace, the ambassador sits down in, a, in a, a jolly company of leaders and they work out all of the details for peace. But during war, it's the herald that goes to the front of the line and he addresses the enemy in this way. These are the terms. Accept them and live. Deny them and die. That's what the herald gets to do. To make that definitive proclamation. To put it in their lap. Now you have to make a decision. That's the word that's used for proclaiming here. It is a loud, punchy, Caruso heralding proclamation. But then right on the other side of that, there's a kinder word. Didasco, to teach. And teaching is something that takes time. Teaching is a, is a kind of persuasion, but, but right as those first three are mentioned at the beginning, uh, that Paul is expounding, that he's testifying, and that he's persuading, teaching is that persuasion. It's time in Scripture. It's flipping back and forth through the pages. And so Paul is teaching them. But here's what I want us to notice as a church body. This word proclamation is so important to our vision. We want to be a church that makes Jesus known. We want to do that in any and every circumstance. We want to do that while we're chained. We want to do that while we're unchained. We want to do that when we are living in a culture that is alive and thriving with morality. We want to do that in a culture that is getting smaller and smaller and more and more oppressive to us. In all circumstances, we want to be that loud heralding body. But on either side, we're going to welcome with gentleness. And we're going to engage in teaching, even if it takes time. This is why we're looking at this passage. It's a very stern word, proclamation. It's the sternest way to say, proclaim, in the New Testament. But isn't it true that a people who have been saved by great grace are a people who ought to have a loud message of where that grace has come from? Shouldn't that be the case? Shouldn't we take all of our strengths and utilize them that Christ Jesus might be made known? Shouldn't we use every opportunity we have to expound the story of redemption, active, happening right now, whether you want it to or not? Uh, Ought we to take advantage of every opportunity to testify uh, that uh, hope that we have within us that Jesus is at work and that his spirit is indwelling and that God's presence is near? And then ought we desire to take every opportunity that we have to persuade and to teach, to instruct, to open scripture, to submit to it? So what happened is Paul's rented house had actually became a missionary headquarters. Romans, Jews, friends, acquaintances, even in the decay of Rome, even in the increased hurt of Christians, Paul, he's there. And what is he doing? He has nothing to offer. And yet he has everything to offer. He is welcoming and he is proclaiming and he is teaching He's making Christ known with everything that he has. 
and by earthly standards he has so little. If everything is taken from us as a church, if we ourselves go down in shackles, if we ourselves are in a situation as the recipients of the Hebrew letter uh, and we are watching our brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted and perhaps even martyred before our eyes, what will we be doing? We'll be doing what Paul is doing. By God's grace, we will be making Christ known. If you're new to our church, it's good for you to hear that this is what our church is about. That we wish to do this in a way that is welcoming and gracious. But we wish to do this in a way that's also honest and not capitulating. We have a message that must be heard. And our desire is that we would uh, be uh, recipients of the work of the Holy Spirit who would send to us people that we might make that proclamation to in gentleness, but in honesty. Straightforward, but with an opportunity to see it in Scripture. Two years imprisoned and proclaiming Christ all the while. May that be what we do. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that the message that has saved us is a message that, has, that is placed into our hands and, in, uh, and on our lips. The message that has saved us is a message that we get to proclaim Forgive us for not taking advantage of the opportunity to make Christ known. And by your Spirit, lead us that we might be singularly focused upon that. We thank you for preaching to us. Enable us as heralds to the King to do the same to others. In Jesus' name, amen.